All right. Well, um, I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and I welcome you. I'm thrilled that you're here. We have, uh, we've been around for about three, just over three years as a young church here in the city of Nashville. We preached originally, I believe it was 40, I want to say 42 weeks through the book of James, which is incredibly difficult to get to Christ through the book of James because it's so uh, proverb-like. You know, uh, it's, it's wisdom literature. And so it was, it was hard work that we studied every week to get to Jesus, because that's our goal in preaching. My goal in preaching is to get you to see Jesus in his beauty, in his magnificence, in his splendor, and then leave as quickly and as quietly as I can so that you're kept eyes on him and I'm moving away. Because he can change you. If I try to be the one who gets you to Jesus and change you, I'll modify your behavior at best and it won't last. But if I can get you to Jesus, if you can see him in his splendor, in his majesty, in his glory, then he will work in your heart and he will work in your life, changing you from the inside out and not just what old Jeremy can do from the outside in. And so that's been our prayer from the very beginning is that people would be truly changed and transformed by Jesus and not just modified behavior, you know, their behavior being modified temporarily by just a religious movement. And uh, so anyway, a little commercial there uh, for our goal in preaching. So we went through James for 40, 42 weeks, and then we went through Ephesians, which is extremely dense in its theology, especially the first three chapters. And then it gets very practical. Based on this theological perspective being taught, the last three chapters are, here's how you live this out. And so it was six chapters, I think it was 53 weeks. And so now we've been in John. We've been in John for 60, I believe 62 weeks today with a commercial for Advent and a couple commercial interruptions for different causes, but we have been at this for 62 weeks in the book of John. We have never focused only on this passage of scripture where Jesus is on the cross high and lifted up. We have taught from it, we have pointed to it, but we've never just found ourselves here. So not only for 62 weeks have I been looking forward to this, but since we began this young little church, I've been waiting to get to a point where we can look at simply the beauty of the cross, the ugliness of the cross, the reality of the cross. And so it's with great joy that I ask you to turn to John chapter 19. Originally, I thought I was going to be able to get through several verses, but at about 9.45, I started copying and pasting and inserting a page break, like a little to be continued for next week. And so we're not even going to get to the death of Christ, though we're going to get really close. And I think we're going to end up spending several weeks here because of the ramifications of what it meant for Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to die our death. And so today is but an intro to the weeks that we'll be spending together. So let's pray and ask Jesus to help us, um, to help you here, to help me here, to help me say things that you need to hear about Jesus and not things that are going to make you be impressed with me. So I need to pray against me and pray for Jesus for you. So let's do that now. Jesus, Lord, um, I'm very excited to, to, to be able to preach the greatest news that human ears could ever hear. 
Lord, um, actually the greatest is we're going to be in your presence without sin at all in our life, without the old flesh, the old man, the self that rages even within us now as redeemed people. Lord, that's going to be gone forever. Then we will really hear who you are, and we'll really see who you are. But until then, human ears, the greatest news that human ears, fallen ears could hear today, Lord, I get to talk about this. I get to, Lord, to to speak of what you did for us. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will be magnified and glorified and not just implied, but, Lord, made much of. May we embellish who you are. Lord, may we magnify who you are. May we glorify who you are in your word today. Lord, we find it so difficult to understand and comprehend and focus, especially today with so many distractions. Lord, I know that so many are here even working on electronic tablets and iPhones, and they're looking at Scripture, and I know there's going to be messages pop up, and Lord, there's going to be little words with friends things pop up, and they're going to find monster life over here things popping up, and it's going to be so distracting even in this setting, even as we seek to make much of you. So Lord, use those electronic mediums, but Lord, protect Protect us from getting messages and protect us from losing focus. And may we solely focus on you because that's what we desperately need. For 45 minutes out of seven days, would you help us simply focus on you? Lord, tune this stuff out. Help us focus only on your frequency. Lord, tune our hearts to that channel today. Lord, would you save those who are lost, Lord, who, who are so discouraged, Lord, who are here because they're giving church or giving Jesus one last chance. Lord, would you use today, Lord, to change them? Would you use the words that are spoken by sinful Jeremy, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to change them and alter the rest of their life and eternity? Lord, for those who are in Christ, who are in you, who believe you, but Lord, who so quickly forget within seconds of reading scripture, Lord, we forget and we sin and we believe a lie and we find our identity wrapped in other things. Lord, would you be with us Christians who need you to save us today, Lord, to save us from ourselves, to cause us to believe and to believe and to believe that we don't believe all that we need to believe so that we stay in you, Jesus, and so that we can be compelled to fight, Lord, through repentance and confession. Lord, I'm asking you to do a lot today, but it's so little compared to how powerful and magnificent you really are. Lord, help us. Help us see you for who you really are. Help us see us. Help us be very self-aware, if ever, today. May we see who we really are. Lord, give us a glimpse of who we are without you. And would that cause us to make much of you even more. Lord, I'm excited about this word. I'm excited because it's changed me. And I pray that it changes others. Lord, help us and help our children focus on you too. In Christ's name, I ask this. Amen. 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 All right, you ready? All three of us, all right, are we ready? Yeah, all right, let's do this. Get some life up in here. All right, John 19, I'm gonna start reading in verse 16. I am gonna read through verse 30, though I'm not gonna be able to work all the way through that today. John 19, be encouraged by the reading of the word of God. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. 
Pilate, also the governor, also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in quotes. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each other. So there must have been four soldiers there. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots. That's a way of gambling. Let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So here's the setting. Jesus was arrested in a garden. He went from unfair trial to unfair trial. He's here standing before Pilate. Pilate scourges him, which literally the phrase, you know, to beat half to death, like you, you half killed me, comes from scourging. From this moment, they tried to get you to where you were almost dead just by beating you with the scorpion, the cat of nine tails. It's a long whip, sometimes a short whip, but the emphasis is on the nine to 10 to 12 different endings, which were straps of leather with bone, sharp bone and, and rock, pottery that was meant to cut deep to be able to expose the spine, to be able to have the internal organs begin to fall out of the torso. From head to the tendons of the feet, this scourging would take place. Most of the time, they will be chained, hands spread and feet spread. And then, depending on the cruelty of the soldiers, they would turn them around and beat the front. And this always happened with no clothing. They didn't want anything to stand between the, the torture and the person's body, the device and the body. Other times, they would take them and lay them over a post to where they were literally just hunkered over something to expose completely and tightness of the back of the skin to where when it hit, it would just rip. Most of the time, eyes would be removed because it would catch. It wasn't rare, according to Tatticus, the historian of the time, for a piece of the scorpion, the canine tails, to rip in the mouth and then be ripped and just leave the jaw hanging several inches below the mouth. 
This was typical of a scourging. But the writers of the Greek New Testament, and even the historians that, that include this portion in, in their volumes of history, leave us to believe that this type of scourging was much more than what even was considered drastic in this era. This was brutal. And then to mock even more, they bring out Jesus, and he's presented as, here's your king, and he's wearing a robe, a purple robe, and he's wearing a crown of thorns that they rammed on the, the top of his head down to the sides of his temple, and they were each two to three inches long. They also, scourging by the Romans, would include taking salt, rubbing salt to an open wound. That's from scourging. And they would take salt or salt water to throw on the criminals being beaten. Jesus endured all this. And what's interesting to note is if you read this prior to verse 16 that I started with, is that after the scourging, Pilate presents Jesus and he says, I still find no fault in him. What that tells me is that enduring the beating that Christ never, ever did, said, or looked in any way that would be incriminating. Not one thing that he would utter. Man, if you try to beat me, It'll take a handful of men and a few whips to at least get me to stop screaming my head off and trying to retaliate. I'll do my best to grab that whip and jerk it out of your hands and begin defending myself. Christ didn't do that. He took it. Being presented as faultless once again, bleeding head to toe, organs exposed, suffering, half dead, we find this dialogue. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus, and he went out. You see, Roman law, just speaking to the injustice done to Jesus Christ in his trials, which led to his conviction, which led to his crucifixion, is normally the law was, the Roman law, that between conviction of your sentencing and your execution was two and a half days. It was to give a working man two full days to find anything that would cause otherwise for the jury to know some information that would change the verdict. With Jesus, two and a half hours from the first time he stood in front of Pilate to him walking to the cross. Two and a half hours. And that includes the dialogue with Pilate and the scourging with Pilate. So literally, seconds rather than two and a half days. Yet, that's exactly how God wrote it up. Romans 8.32, speaking of him being delivered up. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. He delivered him up. Consider Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much will he also graciously give us all things? The giving himself up, that language is important to John the author. You see, God's plan is being orchestrated even with the hands of sinful men. God is in the business here as well as with you in your life of using evil for good and for his glory. Here is the ultimate picture. If we ever see a bad situation be used for good, we see it right here. Satan is seeking to kill Jesus and God is using the death of Jesus to kill Satan and to kill sin and to kill death and to grant hope. 
This is such security. Our God is uncontrollable. He has no match. Nothing can hold him or stop him. Satan sees this as the end of hope. God and Jesus see this as the beginning of a bright, bright, certain hope. Verse 17, and when he was led away, or he went out, I know a lot of your translations say he was led away, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. With the brutality of a typical crucifixion, the criminal would typically fight. They would, the language would be, and they were dragged away. They were pulled away with much struggle. Yet Jesus went out being led away. You see, Jesus willingly gave up his life to save. 800 years before this instance here, Isaiah 53, 7, the prophet said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter, he was led away. Like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was led away. Verse 18, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was typical with crucifixions to nail on top or at the foot of the person being crucified their charge, what it was that they were being crucified for, punished for. As a way of teaching others, if you do this, this is what you're going to get. So it was a way of trying to instill fear for obedience. Look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, though outside of the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. All three known languages of the central region here, these people all knew this. And to me, I see this as pointing to the fact that what was being accomplished by Jesus on the cross was not just for the Jews, but also of people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. This points to the fact that there's going to be more than just Jews get in on this. This tells me that anyone can get in on this. This should make us very excited. Verse 21. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man says that he was king of the Jews. Pilate answers, I have written what I've written, I have written. Oh, what a leader. If you've been around us for any length of time, you know that Pilate is pitiful. He's just whooped by these people. But here, trying to, to spite them just a little bit more, he's like, no, I'm not going to change my mind. My mind cannot be altered. I am quite the man, quite the leader. It is what I have written. Give me a break. Come on. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. This was pretty expensive. It was a nice piece of clothing. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill, fulfill uh, Psalms 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, clothing was, was hard to come by. You bartered for it. And so this was something that, man, they didn't want to just throw it away. And it had already been taken off of him before he was beaten. So let's, let's take this good clothing and let's, let's, let's 
gamble for it. Let's, let's roll the dice for it. Let's, let's see whose this can be. At this point, even without the robe that they put on him to mock him for his royalty, the purple robe, Jesus would have been naked. Consider this. When Adam and Eve, the first humans ever created, our representatives, our first parents, when they took of the fruit that God had told them not to eat, they, in doing so, sinned. Verse 7 of Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, what? Hid. Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. I'm really glad that God takes the initiative. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you to eat? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The significance of Christ being naked on the cross is profound. It's deep. Adam was naked and he experienced shame because of his sin. Jesus was naked and ashamed and rejected for us because of our sin. Jesus was what Adam could not be. Adam couldn't help but feel shame because of his sin. He needed someone to help cover him. His covering that he gave himself wasn't sufficient. Jesus was naked and ashamed in order to cover our shame and atone for our sin. We need a covering. Our covering that we give, even though we could be so perfect and try to live so perfect according to the law, never offend anyone. And it's so not okay. It's so insufficient. Our coverings are insufficient. Jesus is the sufficient covering that we need. God slaughtered an animal. The very first sacrifice is right here in Genesis 3, where he made for them skins. God slaughtered an animal with the very first sacrifice in order to cover the shame of Adam and Eve that was caused by their sin. As Jesus hung there, the final sacrifice, naked and shredded, his blood pouring from his body, he was hanging there suffering in order to cover our shame and atone for our sin. Just as God killed an animal to cover the shame and sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, here on the cross of Christ, God is killing his own son and leaving him exposed and ashamed and naked to cover and erase the shame and sin of his people. Christ on the cross, naked and exposed, in our place for our sin. This is where Christ, the beating, the scourging, the rejection, the mocking, the torture, the pain, the nakedness, and the shame is where Christ is seen as if never, ever, ever any other way than in this moment, 
our propitiation. He is our wrath absorber. He is our wrath sponge. This wasn't just a physical suffering of Christ on the cross. This is all of the wrath of every cumulative sin that has been committed and that ever will be committed by every person that has been saved and will be saved placed on Christ. That's wrath. That's all the punishment, all the wrath, every bit of it. That's what Christ was doing on the cross. He was making a covering for us because all that we can do in and of ourselves, even if we're Mother Teresa, even if we were more perfect than Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, whoever it is that you respect because of how noble and perfect they are, it's still insufficient. There's nothing you can do to repair your broken relationship with God. Nothing. You can't work hard enough. You can't stay away from enough bad things. You can't do enough good things to repair what's been broken. It's insufficient. You need someone else to cover you. Someone that is perfect. Someone that if they cared for you enough, would die for you in your place. Where are we going to find that person? 1 John 4 says... In this is the love of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So here's how we've seen God and his love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Not that our affections are on him, but that his affections are first on us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God because we're dead. We're incapable of bringing ourselves to God. There isn't an avenue, there isn't a bridge, there is nothing that we can create physically, spiritually, literally, Metaphorically, nothing can we create in our greatest imagination that can ever bridge the gap that has caused the, the separation between God and us. And our soul longs to see that divide reconciled. There is nothing in this life that we desire more than to have that divide between us and God reconciled and brought together. Nothing. I don't care if you hate Jesus. I, do, I said that last week. I do care if you hate Jesus. But, but in perspective, it doesn't matter if you hate Jesus. It, oh, I just lost my thought. My bad. That's my ADD. All right. Help me refocus here. I care so much about my terms and my words that when I say something I don't feel as accurate, I have to let you know. So it messed me up. All right. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what theologians consider the great exchange, where the righteous dies for the unrighteous, and where the unrighteousness of us who are sinners is placed on the righteous. It's all that is good in Christ is placed on our behalf, and all that's bad on us is placed on Christ. And that's what he was doing on the cross, was absorbing that punishment and being the very one who atoned for us to have life to cover the wrath that was sent towards us that Christ took on himself. And because Christ was sufficient, God's wrath is expired. There is no more wrath. 
There's nothing that you could ever do as a Christian that would ever make God, uh, ooh, you remember Friday night? Yeah, let's talk about that. Never. There's never anything that you could do that's good enough. Jeremy, remember that perfect sermon that you think you preached? Man, that don't make me love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to make me love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to make me love you any, le any less. You see, the wrath that's due our sin is no longer there. Christ took that on himself. It was poured onto Jesus, and there's simply no more left. Even when we think we deserve it, it's as if we're shaking an empty cup on our head, expecting something to come out. And we do that. But there's nothing there. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even John 3.16 that we know and love. Consider John 3.16 in context of 17 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, anybody can get in on this, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Don't stop. Look, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Practically, because of our sin, because of our failures, because of our shortcomings, our heart often, easily, naturally resorts to shame and guilt and self-hate and regret. And we want to beat ourselves up. We want to feel low. We want to feel like we've really disappointed ourselves. We really do. We embellish ourselves in how horrible we really are. But this truth here can daily, minute by minute, and failure by failure, set us free from our shame. How? By seeing and believing that Jesus Christ was shamed for us in our place and that he atoned for our sin that induced our shame in the first place. You see, for those who believe Jesus, God looks at us and no longer sees our sin. He sees Jesus covering our sin. Jesus atoning for our sin. Christian, you're no longer identified by your sin. Rather now, you are in this very second. You're going to sin today. And in the very middle of that sin, the most secretive sin you may have, you are known and identified by the very righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ and not that sin. That's how incredible what Jesus did was for us. This is our only hope. Repentance isn't running in shame from your sin. Oh no, I'm going to get caught. Oh no, what are they going to think of me? I better go be perfect again. That's not repentance. That's fear. That's what Adam did in the garden. Rather, repentance is running to Jesus, your shame bearer, your only hope, and believing all over again that this is true, that he died for you, that he died for your sin, that he died for your obedience, that you think accounts for your righteousness. For those who are outside of Christ today, my prayer is that you will believe this. My prayer is that you will see him on the cross dying for what you're most afraid of. And that's what if somebody knows 
this about me. He knows and he came here on a mission to save you from it. And he loves you. He knows and he loves you. Isn't that what we desire? To be really known, to be honestly known from head to toe, from inside and out, and still be loved? That does not exist outside of Christ. But it's the very thing that you're looking for. Your hope is found in Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that you will see that before you waste any more time of your life. There's nothing like living in this identity. There's nothing as fulfilling as living in Christ. Nothing. And my prayer is that you'll get there before, before you have a family, before you have children, before you have a wife, before you have a husband, before you have grandchildren, before you get on your feet financially because you're scared that if you go all in, it's going to cost you a lot of money from God. Hogwash. That's ridiculous. Run to Christ right now. Don't waste a second. Run to him and experience what life really is. You're trying to figure it out before you jump in. There's nothing like just getting in and experiencing how much better it was that you ever even heard. My words fall, fall so short from the reality of what it's like to be a Christian. It's so much better than what I live. It's so much better than what I preach. Don't take my word for it. Take Christ's word for it. Trust him. There's nothing like living the life of a Christian to where even as we started out this sermon, even when bad things happen, there's still comfort knowing that he's in the middle working out his purposes for your ultimate joy and for his glory. Even when life hurts. I know life hurts. I know you're going through some things that would crumble most people. It's a joy to know that even in the midst of that deep pain or that horrendous sin that you're afraid of and you're ashamed of, that Jesus loves you and that he's aware and that he knows. This is our Jesus. This is why we sing about Jesus. This is why our church, I pray our church never gets over Jesus. I pray you never hear a sermon. You have my permission to leave. If you ever hear a sermon, it's not about Jesus. It's all about him. It's not about how to live perfectly. He lived perfectly for us. We don't give because we want his blessing. He blessed us, therefore we give. You see, everything goes back to him and what he's done for us. This is our hope. There is no plan B. Don't believe a lie. God is working out his plan ultimately for our joy and for his glory. And this is our comfort and our hope. Our king is not removed. He's very aware and he's very sovereign. And we have the joy of being able to experience a restored friendship with our creator because of what King Jesus did. So next week, we're going to unpack his words that is finished and all the ramifications of that. Man, <laughs> yeah, it's really finished. You don't have to crucify yourself through shame and guilt anymore. It's, it's, it's over. What are you talking about? It's done. We're going to get there next week. I pray that you were encouraged. I pray that you see Jesus for who he really is, who he really is and who we really are. Run to him and trust him. And for those who are struggling with trust and belief, a very biblical prayer, which I pray often, is, man, I, I believe. I believe a little. Barely. Man, barely. But I want to believe more. Teach me how to believe more. 
Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Lord, thank you even in the midst of my sermon from protecting me, from saying something that obviously you didn't want me to say. It's awesome knowing that you're in control. Lord, um, would you please continue to work in the hearts of, of us, of your people? And Lord, uh, would you save those who need to be saved? Would you convict and challenge those who need to be convicted, Lord? And would you lead us kindly to repentance of seeing that you're better than everything and that our hope needs to be placed in you because that's where our soul longs to find that dwelling place, Lord, that satisfaction. So Lord, use this time. And Lord, will we not just run to the next thing, but will we use this time here that we have prepared as a way of reflection and communion when we're taking the bread and the wine? Would you use this time, Lord, to just let us consider, let us think through, let us journal, let's ask questions, let's, Lord, Lord seek counsel of those that we came with. Would we pray? Would we, or just use this opportunity that's given to do some introspection, Lord, as we just try to figure out, man, what does this mean for me today? What do, you, what do you want with me today? What's going on? Lord, uh, help us and change us. In Christ's name, amen.